All right, we're going to do something this morning that my, my daughter really dislikes. But uh, I don't know how else to get to it. So uh, we're going to work on an unfinished idea. Like it's something, it's a conversation I've been having with the Lord and He with me. And it's not actually all complete. But I'd like to, I'd like to invite you in on the discussion we're having because it affects the culture of the church in America. Now, with the stuff we're going to talk about today, I don't have in mind this church. I don't have in mind some other church in the Gallatin Valley. I don't have in mind any specific church anywhere. I've just been part of the church culture for over 50 years, and there's some stuff that I know with 100% certainty is a regular occurrence in American church culture. And it wouldn't really matter. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't matter. But the stuff we're going to talk about gets in our road of developing a culture where people can grow. Where people can become who God created them to be. So we're going to jump into that and see where that takes us this morning, all right? Um, We'll start in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The beginning of this chapter, the disciples bump into a person who's crippled and they heal him through the power of God. And immediately there are some religious people who are not very happy about that. You'd think that wouldn't be the crowd that would be unhappy about the evidence of the power of God. But one person once said, the greatest detriment to God doing a fresh thing is the way God did something in the past. And we kind of cement ourselves around the old way and we don't let anything new happen. And uh, so they healed this guy. And immediately they entered into this dialogue, maybe even debate with some religious leaders. And as the debate went along, the disciples really showed themselves to be articulate, wise, resourceful. In fact, this whole verse says that those watching what was going on saw the courage of the disciples. And then they said they noticed they were ignorant and unlearned men or unschooled, ordinary men. They'd been passed over in the rabbinical choice process. They weren't considered the best and the brightest. And yet, this word is used in the verse, the people watching were astonished at the stature and the resolve and the presentation. So much so that it says it was noted that they had been with Jesus. It was noted that they had been with Jesus. So dramatic, impactful was the change that had, trans, that, had, that had happened in the lives of these men. From the fishermen to these giants, the people were astonished. Now, I like that verse. So let's fast forward now into... Uh, 20th and 21st century American Christianity. Um, last, a couple weeks ago, a lot of us were at the uh, summit in Billings. Summit is, comes from Willow Creek in Chicago. It's a live simulcast all over the United States. There's about 120,000 people watching, uh, world-renowned leaders from all over. Uh, early on in the first day, they had a, a person presenting about helping people with AIDS in Africa. And it was kind of like the cup of cold water in Jesus' name. People who are dying this week. And what do you do immediately to help? Later in the summit, as part of the second days, 
someone was talking about the need for infrastructure long-term, like fair trade and the nationwide infrastructure to help people help themselves. Now, at the beginning, Bill Hybels, who's the head of all this, made it clear that people were invited to blog and Twitter back and forth over all these issues. Well, evidently, there was a lot of Twittering going on because he stood up and made some unplanned remarks. And this is what he said. He said, we've been watching the blogging and the Twittering going on, and it's gotten pretty intense. And there's this debate going on with, well, should we give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name to somebody who's dying today, or should we invest in the infrastructure that will help people down the road? Then he said this. He said, intelligent Christians can keep both ideas in their mind at the same time. And he was irritated. Now that little snapshot, that little knee-jerk reaction, I've seen that for 50 years. And what is that? I'll give you another example. So a couple years ago, a guy out of his own brokenness and his own journey, he writes a book called The Shack. He actually wrote it just to explain to his own kids something of how he has met the Lord and how the Lord has brought healing in his life. But the thing started selling. Selling by the tens and the hundreds of thousands. People in the church, out of the church, buying the thing. But the next thing you know, there were sermon series. The four heresies of the shack. Somebody asked me about, well, I mean, what do you think? Do you think, was God a, a black woman? I said, it's a novel. It's a piece of fiction. He used a novel format to communicate how God had spoken to him. If you go into the scriptures and you use the parables, which were the stories Jesus told, and you extrapolate the parables out too far, you'll end up in heresy. The parables were not meant to be extrapolated indefinitely. If you took the father, who was the God figure, in the parable of the prodigal son, and you took that too far, you would end up in untruth. But that's not the point of a parable. Nor is it the point of a novel. What's that about? Or if I talk about, um, I like to I like to talk about human, because I think in the Christian culture, human got to be a dirty word. I don't think human is a dirty word. Jesus became fully human. He said, "You and I were created in the image of God." He went to Gideon and said, Gideon, you are a mighty warrior. That's your capacity. But if you talk about human too much, the next thing you know, somebody's going to say, well, isn't that part of the human potentiality movement of the New Age doctrines? How do you get from, well, I got this idea that comes from Scripture, and there's a, all of a sudden we're leaping over here. Or something that's actually getting more common Church is talking about being good stewards of the earth. Now, you would think a few years ago when uh, 
when you could light a match, throw it in the river that goes through Cleveland, and uh, the water would catch on fire? You would think cleaning that up would just be like a good idea. That we'd say, you know, I, God gave us the earth. We really ought to take care of it. But if you talk about that, the next thing you know, someone says, boy, that's awful close to Gaia. Gaia was the, uh, the Greek goddess of the earth, and uh, that's earth worship. Boy, that's awful close to Gaia doctrine. Uh, how, how do you get from, let's not have the water burning, to I'm worshiping the earth as a god? So I've been watching this for years, this immediate leap, and uh, it actually runs a little deeper for that than that for me, just because of some of my personal experience. I was serving a church that uh, it had a German background. I don't say that disparagingly. I'm part German, but because it was German, it had kind of a reserved approach to spirituality. And uh, it wasn't a church that had been particularly healthy. And I thought at the end of a year, God was saying, I want to do something supernatural. I want a supernatural demonstration of my power to show that I'm with you. I'm with this church. I want to do something dramatic. And so the invitation of the Lord was, and this isn't something I'd normally do, just because it was, I, I'm not... I'm not about embarrassing people or things like that, but he said, you know, if you just, at the end of every service, if you invited people who wanted to transact business with God just to come forward and kneel at this altar, there will be someone at this altar every week for the entire year. Now, the first thing I did was not tell anybody that that's what I thought God was saying because I actually think a lot of times God doesn't, like when I think he said, he didn't always seem to show up like I thought he was going to. And so I just kind of, well, okay. So without telling everybody, anybody, I started to preach through that year. Now, let me tell you what I was preaching on. Uh, I, I'd been watching people, good people, trying to change and constantly running into roadblocks and having their change efforts sabotaged. And at least out of my own experience, I found four things that had to, had to shift before change could happen. And so I started talking through the year about these four things. And here's what the four things were. One is, I realized that many of my choices were not being made by me. They were being made by my history. And for change to happen, I have to start having authority over my choices, not my history. Now, all of us have historical baggage. And I'm going to tell you, someone said, well, is that biblical? Well, think of Jacob and how Jacob was deceptive. But you know, Jacob wasn't deceptive in isolation. His father was deceptive. And his, his father Isaac was deceptive. And his grandfather Abraham was deceptive. Under pressure, they used deceit. And it ran in their family. And you and I run into roadblocks and we think, well, it's just me. Sometimes it's not just me. Satan has managed to hang a bunch of weight on us that comes from a lot of history and choices and family of origin and a lot of unintentional places, and it holds us back. So I talked about that. 
The second thing I talked about is I'm struck with how many people live with self-loathing. Self-loathing. Things that arise out of out of views of ourself that come from places we're not even sure. The results of choices we have made in life. It's the kind of thing that God ran into when he started talking to Gideon. And when he started talking to Gideon, Gideon says, well, the Midianites are more powerful than I am. They're certainly greater than I am. And I don't know what's going on, but God sure isn't with me. He might be with other people, but he's not, he's not interested in me. And besides that, I'm weak. I'm the smallest in my family. I'm the, this is the smallest family. I'm, I'm weak. I can't do it. And there was a level of self-loathing a lack of any personal confidence in who God had created him to be. So we started looking at where does self-loathing come from and how do we release ourselves from that shackle. The third, the third was this idea. A lot of people try to change without understanding that it is authority that rules the spiritual world. Jesus was talking to a Roman officer one day. The Roman officer was asking Jesus to heal someone in his family. And Jesus says, well, I'll go to your house. And the officer says, you don't have to go to my house. I understand how authority works because I'm a man in authority in the army. And I tell people, go and they go. And I tell them, come and I come. And all you need to do is speak the word. And Jesus turned around and he says, I have not seen this kind of wisdom in all of Israel. And some of us try to change, but we don't realize we've left the back door of our house unlocked and Satan comes in through the back door. He builds a fortress and he invades us and at the most inopportune times as as we are trying to make changes in our life, he brings havoc and he steals away what it was we think God has placed in our heart. And we don't even know what happened. And we take two or three runs at that and we finally give up. And so I talked about the spiritual world and authority. And the fourth was that if we want to see God show up in supernatural ways, not always, but usually, that is kick-started by our action. Being committed to action. When God started talking to Gideon, he didn't tell Gideon, hey now, here's what I got in mind there, little man. I've got in mind that you're going to go up against 130,000 some Midianites and you're going, to, you're going to clean house. He knew Gideon could not possibly imagine that. So he tried to get him to do one little thing. He says, I tell you what, Gideon, you go out to that pole of Asherah, which was a pole built to, a, to another god, and you tear down that pole. The Bible says Gideon was afraid, so at nightfall he took some people, took some men, he went over and he chopped that pole down. That's what God was after. Gideon, even though you're not sure I'll show up, just take action and see what happens. That was kind of the theme of that year. And much to my surprise, over that year, I preached about 47, 46, 47 times. And over that year, the end of the service, I just say, if you want to talk to God and transact something, 
you just come down here and kneel at this altar. And there were between four and 20 to 25 people at that altar every weekend all year. Until I got to the last Sunday of the year, the last Sunday of December, and I had this drama going on. How do I I work this out if nobody comes this week? Because he said every Sunday, what's going to happen? You'd think I'd get more excited, but actually I got more fearful. Every month that went on, more and more people, I got got afraid that it wasn't going to actually happen. But at the end of that service, when again, a half dozen or so people were kneeling at the altar, God has fulfilled his promise. Now you'd have thought that the body of believers that I was a part of would have been thrilled at this fresh move of the Spirit of God. But just the opposite was true. The longer the year went, the more angry they got. Because I wasn't using the vocabulary they were used to or talking about the topics that that gave them comfort. So irregardless of the freedom that God was bringing to a significant group of people, the church got more and more mad. Now I'll tell you why that matters. That matters because if you and I are going to change, there's a couple things that have to be true when we come through the door of this place. One is there has to be a tone that tells us that who I authentically am at this moment, not who I should be, but who I am authentically at this moment is welcome in this place. And tone is everything. You see, I can go home and I can say to my wife, Marcy, woman... And then I can go to the garage and get my tent and sleeping bag. (laughs) Woman would be accurate. But being accurate isn't going to help me with that kind of tone. Tone tells me if I'm going to be valued and welcomed. The incarnation of Christ tells us he liked being with us and he wanted us to like being with him and the other thing that makes this important is I have to have some sense of safety if I'm going to deal with real stuff in my life you know in the medical I don't mean by safe easy in the medical field like if I go to the hospital they may poke me with a needle and cut me with a knife But I know they're operating under a rule. Do no harm. But if I come into a place and I think intuitively that all I got to do is say something the wrong way or expose the wrong thing and somebody's going to pull a pin on a hand grenade, then I'll just go underground. And I might show up because I really hope I hear something from the Lord 
but I'm not going to be real, and being real in community is one of the primary tools of God's transformation in my life. And so it matters. Now, I'm like, if you're not part of church life at all, we're talking about this today because this is who we're trying to be. We're not this perfectly, but this is who Journey's trying to be. If you're part of church life and you've been part of church life for years, this is who we're trying to be. Because we understand some of the dynamics that have to be in place for people to authentically change. You have to feel welcome. And you have to feel safe. And so that's kind of what we're working on. All right. Um, that's kind of a long introduction. <laughs> but it was important to lay a foundation. We'll whip through the rest of this pretty quick. And uh, so just kind of uh, track along. I got to pondering... How did we get this way? How did the American church get like this? Because the American church is filled with wonderful people. This is learned behavior. So where did this come from? I want to suggest three things. Number one, because being right became more important than being good. Being right became more important than being good. Now I like being right. You can take a lot of tests. The New Testament talks about the Lord has given us apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. You take a little test that kind of helps you see where, where you're at. Usually we're, we're primarily one with a little secondary trait of another. In that line, I'm an apostolic prophet. Now, my primary gifting of the apostolic and ap- apostles are interested in expansion, like the Apostle Paul pushing the gospel out. My secondary gifting is prophet. And whatever else it is, prophet is interested with accuracy. So I'm interested in accuracy. But having said that, I understand that in the world of human beings, I'm not going to get very far when right is more important than being good. And the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, these are lists of being good. Being salt and light. Now, I have a friend. He knows everything about being right. He has been the president of a president of two universities, the dean of a seminary. I have a Bible commentary on my shelf that he's written. This guy knows right. And in his own walk with Christ, he is painfully authentic. And he has a daughter who's an agnostic. And I love to listen to him when he's talking about his daughter. Because there is a gentleness in his voice and a yearning and a love That melts your heart. The biblical model of mercy means there is a higher value than right. 
when God gets all done evaluating something accurately, he trumps it with mercy. And when a culture becomes more interested in being right than being good, I'm not saying we've got to choose one or the other. I'm saying when a culture gets more interested in being right than being good, it may be right, but it is no longer safe. Number two, because fear becomes the emotional response of a protest movement. Uh, evangelicalism is a core. Evangelicalism is a, is a movement that believes the Bible is the Word of God, believes the, the Apostles' Creed. It really came out of a resistance to German criticism was, that was tearing apart the Scriptures in the, in the 18th and 19th century. And uh, it backed up and says, whoa, we're committed to the Scriptures. Now, a protest movement has something that it values that it's not willing to give up. The underbelly of any protest movement and the challenge of any protest movement is to keep the fear that it's working against from becoming primary. When fear becomes the fuel of a movement. That's not a very healthy place. Um, so, for example, chat with somebody. I don't know about these Harry Potter books. In fact, I heard a preacher say, you know, I tell you what, all this Harry Potter book, all this supernatural stuff, get out your deliverance ministries. For one thing, I like Harry Potter books. And I like going to Harry Potter movies. And I find it peculiar that the same people who are irritated about Harry Potter books revere C.S. Lewis. Who I like a great deal. And when I'm, when I'm in England on my, on my uh, studies, I'll usually take a train to Oxford and pay $3 to go into Maudlin College where C.S. Lewis taught and uh, walk around to the building where he had his offices, his rooms. And amusingly, they call it the new building, which it was built in the 1700s. This is the new building. And, uh, but if you read C.S. Lewis or his friend J.R. Tolkien and uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and the Wicked Witch. But the reality is that so much of the American church is fueled by fear. And in the New Testament church, when, when opposition came, it threw open the windows, it banged open the doors, it marched out into it because it knew what it had in Christ. It welcomed so that we read in Acts 4.13, they were astonished at the wisdom and the insight and the courage of the disciples who had walked with Christ. That's the redemptive message. And the third is uh, because insecurity becomes the common result of unfulfilled expectations. One person said the key to success is reduced expectations that can't be right but here here's what happens in the church 
we start talking about having a relationship with Christ. And some of us here buy into that, and then we find out we're having a hard time having a relationship with Christ. And so, internally, without telling anybody, we shift from a relationship with Christ to a devotion to an ideology. Now, you know the problem with that is? One of my favorite writers is Mortimer Adler. Mortimer Adler was the philosophy professor at the University of Chicago for many, many years. And uh, he was being interviewed many years ago by Bill Moyers on PBS. And it was just just scintillating, the whole thing. They got all done. Bill Moyers says, you know, you've got such a wonderful system worked out. Is there anything missing? And Mortimer Adler, in great honesty, said, yes. I have one thing missing in my system. Bill Moyers says, what is it? He said, warmth. Warmth. What do you mean by warmth? Warmth has to do with relationship. And he had all the propositions right, but the relationship wasn't there. Sometimes when we can't make the relationship with Christ work, we just shift over to ideology, but ideology doesn't give us warmth. Having our doctrines all lined up doesn't give us warmth. And I think that's how we get to be sometimes just reactionary. Well, if that's not how I want to be, what do I do about it? And let me suggest a couple things. By the way, we're not going to get through, so um, that one gal at the end of the last service come up afterwards with her hand trembling because she had a line that hadn't been filled in yet. (laughs) I understand that because that's how I am. So uh, This may not be true for all of you, but it was true for me. One of the ways out of this for me was developing a relationally centered faith. Developing a relationally centered faith. Can you imagine what it was like for the disciples after Jesus was resurrected from the grave and ascended to heaven? Imagine sometimes when they'd have a potluck or they'd decide all go camping together. Say, all right, let's get some wood. We'll head down to Moose Creek Flats and uh, throw up our tents and Then in the evening, as they all sat around the campfire, they started to reminisce. It's a little bit like Obama being here this weekend. And I was telling somebody at a cafe that I saw one of the helicopters flew right over our house because we live out of Four Corners. And they actually, we were at the Taco Time, which is right on the road, and they'd seen the the entourage go down that had Michelle and the kids kids in it. And uh, it's kind of... Here's the disciples. You imagine them reminiscing, laughing together, about the, you remember the time that Jesus said he was going to feed thousands of people and all we had were a few loaves and fishes? We had the lunch of a little boy. You remember that? Remember how none of us wanted to actually go hand that stuff out because we thought this is going to run out after the first row and how it just kept going on? Hey, Peter, Peter, remember that time you walked on water and then you caved in and went down and got all wet? Yeah, that was sure funny. Oh, remember how quiet God out on, on that hillside when Jesus started giving us the Sermon on the Mount? 
And even outside with all the distractions, not a person was moving. He spoke with such authority. But you know something? When the Apostle John talks about the most significant thing of walking with Jesus for three years, he doesn't talk about seeing the miracles or hearing the truth. He doesn't talk about the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount or the feeding of the 5,000. Whenever John refers to himself in the Gospel of John, he says, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the disciple whom Jesus loved. That the thing that fueled his faith was not that he had all of his ducks in a row. It was that he knew that Jesus Christ part of the trinity of God and the creator of the universe so loved him that when they were at a meal together he could lean over and lay his head on the chest of the creator of all things and know that there was no place in the universe that was safer than that person sitting next to him. A relationally centered faith. Because of my own gifting, I love doctrine, and I like having ducks in a row, and I'm highly analytic. But I've had to learn that if my faith was not fueled by relationship, that my tank was nearly empty and my engine was usually sputtering. And when relationship fuels my faith, it impacts how safe a person I become. Now let me give you one more and then we're done. The second one is developing a process-centered journey. A lot about Christianity is deciding to believe a certain thing, deciding to become a believer, deciding to put my faith in Christ. But Christianity, much like marriage, is a lot more than the marriage ceremony. So when Peter is talking about Christianity, he says, all right, now here, here's the thing. He says, now, add to your faith virtue, and add to virtue knowledge, and add to knowledge self-control, and add to self-control perseverance, and add to perseverance godliness, and add to godliness brotherly kindness, and add to brotherly kindness love. And he says, if you stay on this journey and you keep building layer upon layer, he said, this is the promise. You will not be unprofitable in your walk with Christ. You will not be unprofitable in your walk with Christ. So here's, here's what I've learned about faith. It's like I've been walking with Christ for many years. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the more things I don't know. Now, the longer I walk with him, the more things I know. But the longer I walk with him, the more things I don't know. So I have a friend who used to be, he worked at the University of Minnesota 
science department, and they made rockets that they'd go to Churchill, Canada, and they'd shoot them up into the into the uh, into the atmosphere in order to measure radio waves. And he was an astronomy specialist, and I was chatting with him, and I realized at the end of the chat, let's say that I knew six things about astronomy, like there are stars. Pretty basic. And because of the six things I knew, I knew that there were about 60 things I didn't know. Now let's say he knew 600 things about astronomy. But because of the 600 things about astronomy he knew, he knew that he didn't know about 6,000 things. So let's say some of you have been only on your faith for a year and I've been on my walk for 30 years. I may know more than you know, but I don't know more than you don't know. (laughs) You see how that works? It's kind of hard to start getting proud about how much you got when every time you take another step, there's more stuff you don't know. So I don't know more stuff today than I knew when I was 16. There are enormous amount of stuff I don't know. And that's one of the results of process. When you're on the journey. And when you're on the journey, building layer upon layer upon layer, the tone, the tone of your life becomes gentle. And you become safe because wherever you meet someone on their journey, you're always conscious of how much you don't know on yours. So you have neither energy nor focus on pointing fingers. You're much more interested in taking a hand. I think that's it. I said this in the other services. I don't know that I need to say it, but I'm, I'm, I prayed with someone before service. I said, you know, actually, I'm nervous about this theme. I'm, I'm not mad. But at 59... I have an interest. And the interest is the liberation of people who hear the gospel of Christ. The scriptures say, for freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. For freedom's sake. And I yearn for for any decision anyone else makes, I yearn for us to be a place of freedom. Well, why don't you set your things aside? Thanks for being so attentive, attentive this morning and gracious. We're just going to bow our heads for a little bit here at the end. And uh, if you just bow your head and close your eyes, nobody's going to embarrass anyone as we just finish this part of our service. But could I ask you? Has there been something in your life that has you down in the dust and is just pummeling you? And you wrestle with it 
You try to catch your breath. But every time you take a run at it, it just seems to have more power than you have. And this morning, you want to transact something with the Lord. Right where you're seated, you just want to pray to Him. say something like this, Lord I realize this morning that you like to be with me because of this thing that's gone on in my life I sometimes have a hard time believing it your word tells me that while I was yet a sinner you were laying down your life for me you like being with me and that gives me hope Lord you know this thing that I'm wrestling with the thing that beats me up way more than I ever beat it up. And Lord, I've taken enough runs at this, I don't actually know how to do it. But I need to reach my hand out to you today. Say, Lord, would you give me strength? Would you bring me people into, bring people into my life that are safe? that can journey with me. Will you give me the courage to hold my hand out to someone? Because I'd like to experience in my lifetime the freedom that you talk about in your word. So Jesus, come into my heart right now. Let my invitation come into my heart journey together with you. Just where you're at, you can just pray right now. You go ahead. We're just going to wait for a moment. If there's something you want to transact with God, you want to say to Him, take this moment to do that. to us today thank you for being patient when we a lot of times are just in a fog thank you for holding your hand out to us today and inviting us to take hold of it for these who slip their hands up I pray you'll rush grace to them to meet them at the very point of need that they carry in their heart.
they'll find you a faithful friend. Pray you'll help us here at Journey. Have the kind of tone that welcomes and the kind of safety 